Hi everyone, this is Fur Curtis coming to you at the top of the episode to let you know about an exciting collaboration for our Pride episodes. Our Pride episodes are in collaboration with and supported by Certified Proud. And if you don't know who Certified Proud are, well, I encourage you to go check out the amazing work that they do. Certified Proud is an organisation which allows the LGBTQ community to feel safe whether that's in the workspace, visiting a hotel on a holiday, or going to the gym. If Certified Proud is affiliated with a group, everyone will be welcomed with respect and fairness. Entheus holds a lot of the same values as Certified Proud, creating safe spaces for the queer community, fighting discrimination, inclusivity, and being the change we want to see in the world. We are extremely grateful for the work that Certified Proud do and we want to thank Gleam, Danya and Eve, the Certified Proud team, for their support on our Pride episodes. And now, enjoy the episode. Welcome to Reimagining Ceremonies, a podcast by Entheos. I'm Karen Dempsey. And I'm Fred Curtis, and we're here to start conversations about reimagining ceremonies. Hello, everybody. Thank you for joining us for our second Pride episode. I'm going to say hello to Karen. Hello, Ferg. How are you doing? I'm very well, thank you very Good. much. Good, we had a little chat beforehand <laughs> and Karen was like, I was really quiet when you introduced James last week. I was like, there was, there was so much interesting stuff. I was like, when do I come in, Ferg? You're the professional, like, how do you? Well, I don't know. It was James. <laughs> James was amazing and yeah, so inspiring. Yeah, yeah, so we hope yeah. you enjoyed that episode, but we have another guest here today. We do. Um, Robbie Lawler. So I was on my way into here today, driving in the car. I was like, right, how are we going to introduce the one and only Robbie Lawler? And the words that kept coming to me was infectious energy. And just whenever I'm around you, you just are this infectious beacon of light. And beacon of light is something I use for certain people in my life. And I was like, yeah, Robbie falls into that category where when, wherever you are with whoever you are with, you just are this like shining light. Welcome to the podcast, Robbie. Thank you. <laughs> From one shining light to another, oh, <laughs> can I return that compliment, please, and pass it on also to Karen? Um, I feel this room is just lit up yeah, <laughs> yeah. positive energy. Yes. Really, it really is just so loving in here. So. People passing by in the street are going to feel it. I know. They're people looking in the window. <laughs> this is a glamorous room, by the way. It's Thank nice. You. So yeah, for so for people who don't know, we record the studio in City Sanctuary. Yeah. We made that decision to do it here. The only issue sometimes is we get the beautiful sounds of Thomas Street. City. <laughs> um, city life. Um, but let me hand it over to Robbie to just introduce yourself for the people who might know who you are. I always find these introductions, yeah. self-introductions so weird. Actually, with Robbie, in, in this organisation, we invite people to introduce themselves in a way that maybe they don't usually introduce themselves. Oh, interesting. So would you like to give that a try? <gasps> Ooh, because, you know, as activists, you normally have your bam, bam, bam. Yeah, your spiel. Yeah. Okay, who am I? Um, my name's Robbie Lawler. I'm from Dublin. Um, I'm one of five children. My mum raised five of us on her own. Wow. We're from Kandahar. I did not know that. Yes, yes. And I, I, I say this because I think it, like, it brings so much 
um, of who I am today, yeah. how I grew up. Because my mom was just the most resilient, brilliant woman, raising five kids on her own. And we were yes. like really, really poor. And it's just seeing her resilience and her power and just being extremely happy and positive person throughout all what we consider hardships. And just growing up feeling loved my whole life has made me become a HIV activist just so wow. much easier. People say mm. bravery or resilience, and it's like, no, ultimately it's something, when you get HIV diagnosis is how can we get on with life and how can we share this energy of power and overcoming self-stigma and hopelessness, mm -hmm. feelings of that. And, and just trying to, as you say, it's infectiousness, right? My mom gave it to me. I want to give it to everyone else. Yeah. <laughs> the power of overcoming overcoming HIV shame, yeah. HIV mm -hmm. shame. So that's who I am. That's who I primarily see myself as someone who's trying to help Ireland be shame free. Yes, Robbie, that is, you've just verbalized what it means when we say, I love to say the revolution begins at home. But your mother mm -hmm. instilling that in you, that has actually filled you up with that light that you bring out into the world now because you're so generous of spirit and so generous with your time and so generous with your knowledge and wisdom and life experience. Yeah. Oh, I love it and loads of love. What to I mom. also heard was, and this isn't even a question, but it's rooted in love. Like mm -hmm. your mom's love for the five of you obviously allows you to have that ground root into the into the earth. So you can just be like, everything comes from love. So the bravery comes from love, the fighting stigma comes from love. All of that is rooted in love. Oh yes. my God. I, and it's so funny you say that because anytime I'm doing media and I'm like, can we not just love each other more? I feel like I'm Oprah all the time. I'm yes. trying to be Oprah. And it sounds so like almost cringy or cliche, but honestly, um, it's, it's really at the heart of what we try and do, changing hearts and minds through love, through yeah. humanizing experiences. That, that's how we're going to overcome stigma. And that's how I have seen through my work is how we change people's hearts and minds. Mm -hmm. so it's just by kind of uh, just showing what it is to be human, regardless of what health condition you have or how you got it. I think actually when we, when I was training first for Entheus, it's a very personal journey. Mm -hmm. um, and one of the things was, like you just said, I'd be saying, using all these words, and I was like, they just don't, they feel like I'm being cringy, but I've no other way to articulate yeah. it. And I think whenever you, because I've seen you in the media chatting about loads of different things, I've got the privilege of sitting in a studio listening to you and Veda meet people, chat with people. You have the words, but it's actually the experience and the intention behind it that doesn't make it cringy. Exactly. You know, it's so truthful. Whereas I think all these words and terminologies are like thrown around so much. But if it's coming from a real place, we have no mm. other words yeah. but these words to express it. It's similar with ceremony is yeah. this is the language we know. We just need to know our intention behind yeah. it. We yeah. need to bring it to life through our actions. Because mm -hmm. yeah. the words on their own mean nothing, but actually bringing it to life through what you do in the world and who you are in the world, as big or as small as that might be, the tiniest actions make the, can change the world. That's true. Mm -hmm. They really can. What I'd love to do is just explain to the listeners why we've brought you in. Um, so we're exploring death in the queer community this month for Pride Month. We've explored Died with Pride, if you want to go back and listen to that episode. We've explored the Queer Death Cafes with James O'Hagan. So the big kind of fundamental thing that's ringing through for me is the legacy of death in the queer community. And that's why we wanted to bring you on as a HIV activist, because there's many different contexts as to why death is so prevalent in the queer community. Suicide, mental health, murder, you know, 
all these different areas, but HIV slash AIDS is also one of the big legacies. And I wasn't comfortable using the word legacy. Even on the way in today, I was kind of like running through some questions in my head and I was like, legacy almost feels really positive, Mm. you know, but I was like, no, it is a legacy and it's a legacy to our queer community. Could you maybe from someone who is HIV positive, tell us about the legacy of HIV and AIDS, maybe particularly in Ireland, but also how important it is to remember mm-hmm. that legacy. I am going to come from a different angle than the AIDS crisis so much, um, if I'm talking about lived experience, because yeah. I was born in 1991 and HIV treatment came on the market in 1996. Okay, so okay. I was five and it came on the market. And what the, the treatment does for anyone who doesn't know is it gets the virus so low in your body, it lies asleep in different parts of your body. It's one pill a day um, that it doesn't affect your immune system. It doesn't attack your immune system because it's asleep. So people stop dying because the immune system was fine and we get to live as long as anyone else. And also, you know, it gets the virus so low, we know now in our body, in our semen, in our vaginal fluids that we can't pass on HIV sexually. The risk is zero, right? So just to kind of uh, state that. So Up top. Up top, up top, before (laughs) we even go anywhere. Let's celebrate that. (laughs) Yes. Um, So I was born in 1991. HIV treatment came on the market in 1996. Because people stopped dying, people still do die of AIDS, can I just say, even today. And I'll go into that a little bit later. But because largely people stopped dying of AIDS in high-income countries like Ireland, where we had the resources to buy these Mm -hmm. treatments, um, people stopped talking about HIV. And I've talked to many HIV activists who worked through the AIDS crisis, who were activists during then, and they stopped because they said they were so tired and traumatized by what they saw in the 80s and 90s and by all those they lost. Uh, The government stopped talking about it. We didn't get any education in schools. LGBT, queer organizations, stopped talking about HIV because it's quite stigmatizing Mm -hmm. overall for the community. So there was this complete silence of HIV for so long. Fast forward to 2012, I was diagnosed with HIV as a 21-year-old gay man who would have been on the scene at least three times a week, right? Between 18 (laughs) to 21, I had a great life. And I never knew HIV existed. I didn't know anyone who who lived with HIV. I never talked once about HIV to friends or sexual partners that I can remember, okay? It was just never prevalent in my life. I didn't even know HIV existed in Ireland. And what I say here is, because of this silence, we didn't educate a generation. Because of this silence, we didn't remember those who we lost. And I always say, where silence silence reigns, trauma thrives. And because we allowed so much silence to occur, medically we have advanced so much, but from a stigma point of view, it is very, very similar. Like, yes, we don't get Kaposi's sarcoma, the blotches on the skin. People don't walk across mm-hmm. the other side of the street anymore. But people stop texting us when they find out we have HIV. Our mothers might not stop, might stop talking to us mm-hmm. because we live with mm-hmm. HIV. We might be more isolated because of HIV. We might, and, and if I can talk about stigma. Yes, please. Yeah. Um, that's enacted stigma. That's what people do to us. But the worst is the internalized stigma, okay? So actually feeling like we don't deserve our treatment or we deserved HIV or we'll never be intimate again. So if we're talking about the queer community, um, a lot of people living with HIV may be involved in chemsex scene, so taking drugs while sex. And a large large kind of um, portion of the research on this has shown that 
people living with HIV, chemsex allows us to have fake intimacy for a while. Mm. Actually, uh, sex parties are almost like HIV safe spaces because it's not something that's talked about because people are either living with HIV undetectable or on PrEP. So mm. it's actually a safe space. They don't have to divulge that. And so just, just so many things that internalized stigma can do because what we try to do as people living with HIV is saying, you deserve to be loved. Yeah. <laughs> Basically, you deserve to love yourself. You deserve to be loved by others. And if people in your life really can't handle that, there are probably enough people who you should have in your life anyways. Reach out to the people who do love you, who do care, create that family. As queer people, we know what it means to create a queer family, right? Because yeah. not everyone yeah. in our life will understand fully or fully love us the way in the way we need them to. So we get it from other people. Yeah. And even if they do understand it, there's sometimes that bit of distance mm-hmm. that you can't put into words or you can't understand. Yeah. And then you're missing out on that like love and connection with people. It, again, it's all about love and connection yeah. and HIV. And Aveda, my co-star of the Positive Vibe podcast, always says shame is a love blocker. Because mm. when we feel shame, we block ourselves off from love. Panty once said, you know, if you don't tell your family about your HIV, uh, the secret of your HIV status, mm-hmm. sometimes they become acquaintances more than family because we put a distance between ourselves and them unconsciously a lot of the time, but it can happen. And if I can come back to your point about remembering, because it is a really important point, um, Tony Walton, an amazing like, cohort of HIV activists, allies, and government officials, want to make an AIDS memorial. And it has been planned. It's going to be set up in the Phoenix Park, and it's going to be commissioned wow. for this year, which is incredible. It's beautiful. And it was really community-driven. And a whole point of this is, it's about time Ireland begins to remember those yeah. who we lost. Yes. It's about time that we get a handle on the trauma yeah. We grieve properly as a nation, um, but also we can celebrate where we are today. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I think this is the symbol of what the AIDS memorial is. Remembering is a huge part. Between 1996 to 2012, that silence kills people with shame. So let me go back to when I said people are still dying of AIDS today. People are still dying of AIDS because they're not getting tested and... They might go to the hospital with TB or pneumonia, but their immune system's so low that we can't get them on medication fast enough for their immune system to rise back up again. That's why they die. Or some people die of overdose of suicide Mm. because of the shame. Mm -hmm. And we all have lost people to this too in this community. So shame, stigma, silence. It's true what ACT UP New York, Dublin, (laughs) all the active chapters around. Silence equals death. Yeah, because silence Cunis allows equals boss. Cunis mm. equals boss, exactly. So I'm just so happy that you bring us here because every single time we talk about HIV, we break the silence. Yeah. Yeah. Every time we remember those who we lost, but um, and remember them with so much love and heart and to say, I can live as long as anyone else and not pass on HIV to my HIV negative partner at all. Yeah. Because the people before me went through the clinical trials. They went through the hard medication. Now we say taking medications like taking a Tic Tac. <laughs> it's one pill a day, zero side effects profile. And it's like, it freshens my breath essentially, you know? Um, yeah. And I get to, and, and, and it's just a miracle. But it, it didn't happen in a vacuum. It happened with a past. So I do think every conversation around HIV needs to talk about this legacy. Yes. You are absolutely correct. Legacy can be an amazing word. Yeah. And it has been so much because community mobilization has never been quite like it, actually, especially in the queer community. But also as part of the legacy, 
there is so much that we need to learn from it as well. There's so much yeah. learning in all the, f- I would just say, the failures of mm. the legacy, whether that's from the government, whether that's from the community itself. Um, so yes, that's, that, that's what I would say on legacy, remembering, and the importance of conversation. Mm. On a more personal level, because I do think, remember your legacy, remember your history, respected, hold that close. But then there's this other side where today you also have to let go and not live by past traumas or live by, you know, how the queer community were treated. I know there's still so much going on. How do you deal with something like that by going, I'm respecting the legacy, I'm respecting my past, my trauma, but I'm also, I'm moving forward and I'm letting go and I'm living my complete best life because that that's what I deserve, which we know. How, like, how do you balance those two things? It's a tricky balance, okay? Yeah. So... For a very long time, I felt like I was the only one really being out in the media talking about HIV. And there were a few other people like Panty, Liz Martin, incredible people, but um, not as much as is needed, right? So mm-hmm. I was like, okay, there's different generations, people who experience the AIDS crisis, who want that in the media, do you know, who want to experience that. But that's, I can only talk about my own personal experience, yeah. really, truly. Yes. Um, so I, t- I think that's what I fall back on. All I can do is, yes, I will talk about the experiences of people who I've chatted to and they say the importance of remembering. But here I am. <laughs> I'm 32. I take one pill a day. Um, do you know, I have unprotected sex with my fella. He can't get HIV off yeah. me. Like I'm thriving with HIV. And I just want to yeah. show people that because oftentimes when we talk about HIV, it's trauma, trauma, trauma. And yes. the media love talking about the trauma, trauma, trauma. Yeah. And I understand that. Um, and there's healing in that, but that cannot be the only story being told. Yes. So it is saying yes, 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 but also like Here celebrate with us. <laughs> you yes. know what I mean? This is amazing. For it's context, amazing. this came up for us on mic on one of our on our earlier uh, episodes where we talked about Diodra Pride. And in the course of the conversation, we went, hold on a minute. We're talking about Diodra Pride because the, the inspiration for it came from Tony talking about having attended the funerals of so many of his colleagues and friends yeah. from the flight attendant uh, era all around the world. Yeah. Um, and the legacy of that was what inspired Diodra Pride. And on Mike, we realized, but hold on a minute, maybe it's time to unhitch the two of them from each other, that HIV no longer equals death and dying. It's a one of many, I mean, we all yeah. are going to die of some reason. Every single one of us is going to die of some reason. Um, but yeah, to have you on and have your joyful voice yes. um, really, really sharing this, because it brings me to something, and I hope you don't mind me saying this, but from a personal experience way, I was listening to one of your podcasts and you spoke about, um, in a way, what HIV has gifted you in your life. Not in a way. I mean, you're very vocal here about what Mm -hmm. HIV has gifted you. And it resonated with me because I have alopecia. Mm -hmm. I'm bald for anybody not looking, but I'm sure everybody listening to this podcast knows I'm bald. (laughs) (laughs) Um, And it's one of those things, very often people speak to me about it and they'll they'll assume that if I could, I will go back and change it. Mm -hmm. That if I could get hair back, that I would. And it jars me sometimes because I'm like, I don't know if that's true. I don't think I like who I am now with no hair has changed the course of who I became as a person. And actually, I don't want to go back and undo it. Mm -hmm. And the way you spoke sounded quite similar in that. I mean, you were so young with your being diagnosed, like so young at such a formative age. You'd be at clubbing three nights a week and then suddenly be hit with this. Oh, my God, what does this actually mean for me in my Mm -hmm. life? Um, Yeah. And I, I think there's a similarity as well in that it was only when I started going out as a bald woman that I realized how many other people in the world are bald, but yeah. they don't tell people. Mm-hmm. They wear wigs and they cover up because they have their own personal internalized shame and stigma. Um, and people come up to me in the playground and go, I'm bald too. Yeah. Um, oh. You know, so yeah, there's kind of little parallels there. Absolutely not 
equating the two in any way, but oh, the there's, there's so them. many parallels in what you're mm. talking about. Um, I think visibility and visibility, owning something yes, yes. really just empowers other people, yeah, doesn't it? Yeah. I remember I have little LIGO, so you can see this grey patch here on my okay, skin, right? Yeah, so yeah, that's yeah. um for people who don't know, it's um what you call them, an autoimmune disorder where um, your body fights off the menelin in the skin. Okay. And it just happens wherever, right? So there's no rhyme or reason to where it happens. And I, I remember when it first happened, I cried literally three times in my life. And one time is when they told me I had a bit like on my face. I was like, no! <laughs> <laughs> and um, then Winnie Harlow won the America's Next Top yeah, Model, you know? And yeah, she's a bit yes. like, oh, queen. And I was like, oh my God, no, she's a supermodel, <laughs> you know? So just kind of going back onto what yeah, you're yeah. saying, like you are rocking the bald headed look. Well, I actually couldn't imagine much. you wear hair because you're <laughs> no, killing it so much. 100%. And I hope you wouldn't change it. Yeah, no, no, and in terms of HIV, just in terms of understanding that I am proud. Yeah. I'm a proud gay man. Yes, I live with HIV. Am I proud of getting HIV? Well, maybe not the proud is the right word, but what I'm proud of is thriving with HIV, yeah. even though society has done everything mm -hmm. in its power to make me not thrive. And I just want people living with HIV. Like, you probably didn't want alopecia, but when you got it, it's like, actually, do you know what? I'm going to yeah. thrive in life this, with it. This is what's happened. This has happened. Yeah. This is my life. This is current. I can't go back. I can't change anything about it. Mm -hmm. So I might as well just embrace it and embrace make the best it. of it. Yeah. And look it's the best career move ever. I'm the most recognizable celebrant. <laughs> actually. Branding. Yeah. Uh, branded the F -F. Yeah. <laughs> oh my God. I love that. I actually wanted to share. I didn't know if I was going to share this. Um, years ago. So when you talk about stigma and has stigma changed, mm -hmm. sometimes I hear in the media like, and I know stigma is still really there within the queer community, within the HIV community in particular, like it's alive and kicking mm -hmm. and you're doing an amazing job at like slamming that down. But it made me think years ago when I was living in London, I was chatting to a guy on one of the dating apps and he disclosed to me that he had HIV mm -hmm. and I was very uneducated at the time. I didn't know a huge amount about it, except the fact that my, when I came out, my mom was like, well, don't get HIV, you know, like that. Mm -hmm. it, yeah. it was a fear thing. And we had this lovely chat and he explained you equals you to me um, and all this stuff. And then he was like, do you want to go out for a drink? And to this day, I regret, but I said, I'm not comfortable. Mm -hmm. I was like, I'm not comfortable. I, I hear everything you're saying. I believe everything you're saying. You know, it was through an app, but he seemed like a very nice guy. Mm -hmm. um, and I was just like, I'm Might just have been not. Yeah, <laughs> did exactly. You, did it, you was it was. <laughs> Full circle I was moment. Yet. <laughs> <laughs> to get the I'm still waiting for that coffee. <laughs> <laughs> um, but I, that conversation literally stayed with me mm. for years. And then I got this privilege of sitting in a studio. Um, I did the sound a couple of times for Pause Vibes, where I just got to sit there and listen to you and Veda speak to all these different types of people. And I saw just being in that studio, listening to Pause Vibes as my healing journey. And now I know if anyone was like, do you want to go on a date? By the way, I have HIV. It wouldn't even be a thing mm -hmm. for me. And to feel that I've challenged that stigma, well, I feel like listening to you guys, you challenged it for me. But the whole time you were recording that series, I was literally going home, rethinking everything. That's when that conversation came back to me. Like even the little things of when I came out as gay. Sorry, mom, I hope you don't mind me saying this. Um, mm -hmm. But like she left a little article out about AIDS and HIV. Wow. And like all those things came back. So like I feel like my stigma has 
flip-flopped and I mm-hmm. wouldn't care if someone was like, I'm HIV. I'd be like, yeah, let's get the coffee. That doesn't matter. But you oh, did that. This brings me so you much joy. You and Veda did that for me. Okay, um, so what I um, always try and advocate is forgiveness, right? Forgiveness for yourself and um, for people living with HIV who may have gotten the b- bad experience yes. for forgiveness, right? Because we are all uneducated about something, right? That's just, And we can never predict how we're going to react when we get like a, a kind of someone telling us something when we're not expecting it, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and if it's a bad initial first reaction, so do you know, if you, you tell your mom or dad and they might give you a bad reaction initially, um, that's not a judgment or a, a characterization of them as people. Totally. It's give them time to educate themselves, give them time to learn and grow because everyone has the ability to grow, I believe. However, if some people take much longer on that journey, it's better to kind of remove yourself from that environment because you're just doing yourself damage and just give them give, give them the space time themselves. But always, always, there should be a chance for forgiveness in, in this. Um, but also, when I was, before I was diagnosed, if someone told me about HIV, I probably would have been stigmatized towards it because I wouldn't have known anything either. Mm. Um, and change happens when you're uncomfortable, right? Because if, um, if you're comfortable with what someone says to you, well, you're not changing anything, really, are you? You're not really mm-hmm. confronting anything, internal kind of um, perceptions of what it is to be gay or live with HIV. Um, for example, um, Morris's parents, my boyfriend's parents, are very Catholic people, farmers in the west of Limerick. And they found out about my HIV status when I was on the Late Late Show. Oh, well. <laughs> Morris never told him, right? <laughs> this is inside oh. gossip. I haven't told anyone else this. Um, this is exclusive to the pod, right? <laughs> um, so Morris never told them. They found out in the Late Late Show. They were shocked. And it wasn't until I was on the Tommy Turnin show that the parents talked to Morris and they were like, well, what are we going to hear this time? Because <laughs> they still never talked about it because some families just can't talk about these things. Yeah. Right? They just don't have that relationship. And I remember his mom coming up to me saying, oh, did you mention Morris's name in it? And I was like, ah, oh, yeah, yeah. And she's like, oh, do you think they might edit that out? Right. Okay. And I felt really hurt by that because I was like, I'm not editing someone who I've been with seven, eight years of my life, you know, yeah, out of this. Yeah, yeah. He's a huge part of my story. Um, anyways, we had a little Kiki. I'm going to call it Kiki. <laughs> and she is amazing now. When I am on TV, she's like, well done, loved your style. It's something like she couldn't even had her talk about her son being gay for so long. And now she's congratulating me being yeah. on daytime TV talking about HIV. But that was so uncomfortable for her. It was uncomfortable mm-hmm. for me. But there was growth there. Yeah. And now our relationship stronger than ever. And I just kind of want to say she forgave herself. I forgave that interaction. Yeah. Yes. And now we're better than ever. And I just kind of want to say like forgiveness is such a big tool. It's difficult because it's uncomfortable. But when you truly forgive yourself and another person... Like I say, bonds are forged through fire that way. Mm. It's such a powerful tool that we don't really talk about in terms of HIV. Can I just add though, so Morris's cousin is Sarah Collins. Oh yes, we love you Sarah if you're listening. Yes. (laughs) Yeah, so whenever she was up training, she was staying with Robbie and Morris a lot of the time. I didn't know that. Yes. She was on our couch and our couch, our dogs were there and she was eaten alive a few times by them. (laughs) Whatever was on our couch. (laughs) (laughs) But going back to Morris's mom, I think what was ringing through true in my mind was 
judge people by the growth they make, not mm-hmm. what they mm-hmm. used to believe or what yes. what stigma they they had. Judge them by how much they grow. And if someone doesn't grow, then judge them and be like, you know, yeah. come on, yeah. wake, up. On. Yeah. wake up. But <laughs> yeah. in fairness to you as well, you were open to creating the space for that to happen mm-hmm. because it's a brave and courageous thing to have those conversations, especially when you have been hurt. I mean, I felt the ouch of that when you even just said it yeah. vicariously. Mm-hmm. So to be in that position and then to be able to stand back, reflect and go, okay, we'll have a conversation. Do you want to know the secret of how to get there? It's a pretty hard process. So um, remember I said there's different levels of stigma, what people say to us versus how we feel ourselves, right? There's also perceived stigma. Oh, I don't want to tell my man because you lack this way. It's the fair-based one, okay? I don't want to tell my church because they'll kick me out, Um, which we hear quite often in, you know, migrant communities. And um, so, yeah. But how you overcome... I'm actually nervous. I'm like, oh my God, what are you going to say? Yeah, <laughs> how you overcome um, what people might say negatively things to you is by overcoming the internalized stigma. Mm. It is the hardest one to overcome knowing that you are not the problem, that you are not dirty mm. or unclean, that you deserve to be loved, that you are lovable, that HIV doesn't define you in a negative way whatsoever. When you can overcome that, when you can, it becomes a superpower. You become almost bulletproof. Me and Veda say it all the time. And this is one of the reasons why I say HIV was a blessing in disguise. Because I feel like impervious to stigma, truly. So when she said that to me, I knew it wasn't a reflection of me as a person or my relationship with Morris. Um, I knew it was her ignorance around HIV, her fear of what the quote unquote neighbors will say. Mm-hmm. It was never based on me as a person. It's based around, and because I knew that, it didn't hurt me so much in terms of making me feel worse about HIV. It was making me think, why is Morris's mom saying this to me? And -hmm. because I could understand her, you could forgive that rather than trying to overcome the internalized hurt. So you knew that that shame was not yours. Exactly. Exactly. And that is a huge, that's that's a destination in itself. Well, that's why peer support, that's why Mm -hmm. allyship, that's why having a shoulder to cry on. Mm-hmm. Or the power of a cup of tea, I talk about it all the time, yeah. uh, is so important. Because just by listening to people and being present and saying, you're not the problem, helps us overcome that internalized shame. I'd love to to ask there, you've kind of answered it, but I'd love to like get you to like make it in one little concise section. So this idea of dealing with your internalized stuff, you know, and I've kind of faced that around mental health stuff. And still, to be honest, I'm on that journey. How did you get to the point that you were standing in front of people and you were like, this is not my issue and I don't need to take this on and I can forgive them? How how did you do that? Like, I don't even know if there's a textbook answer for that. Um, I don't know. Maybe mine's a fluke, to be honest. My boyfriend loves to tell me all the time when we have an argument, life's not so black and white, Robbie. And sometimes it is, right? So what happened was um, I was in a relationship just after my diagnosis and I was in a relationship with a doctor and I just got my diagnosis after we went on three dates and I was like, oh, he's such a ride and we got along really well and he's so nice and he's such a, oh, anyways. And then I got HIV diagnosis. I was like, for fuck's sake, of course I got HIV diagnosis. Just want to meet this man. But then after, um, I was kind of ghosting him for a while, which you should never do, by the way, but I was 21. And, uh, <laughs> and then I was like, no, Robbie, he's my social science experiment. I'm going to come out to him about my status because if a doctor has an issue about it, I'm fecked, right? <sighs> Anyways, told him and he was like, okay about it. And we stayed in a relationship for like 10, 11 months, right? And all through that, every argument we had was because of my HIV status. 
Mm. Always brought it back. You would say things to me like, my doctor friends were saying, why are you with Robbie? He's a risk to your work, right? And so I was hearing this when I was trying to overcome this internalized shame and the bad medication back in 2012. But that's the old ones. I'm on the great ones now. Um, so I had a lot to deal with. And you're with. also very young. And I was very I mean, young, maturity right? maturity levels as well. Yeah, oh, well, I was very immature before HIV. I was very, and uh, <laughs> HIV is a forced mature. maturity. Yeah, well, it's a forced maturity, isn't it? You yeah, kind of have yeah. to get your crap together, yeah, basically. Yeah. Um, so I, when I was at my rock bottom, right? I was at a really, really low point in my life. And... Uh, I went to my social worker, Deirdre, who I went to frequently, who was one of my rocks, right? And I was like, Deirdre, I'm stuck. HIV gave me so much positive things in my life, like so many positive things. But I feel like my confidence is gone. My carefree attitude, my like just ability to have fun all the time is gone. I just feel stuck. She's like, Robbie, you just need to create a new normal for yourself. If your life is at a rock bottom, consider your life like a blank canvas. You're a painter. Paint that blank canvas. What do you want going wow. forward? And for the first time, I was like, because uh, I kept thinking about what HIV took away from me in terms of my uh, trip to Australia, my mm. future work, all of mm-hmm. these things. That's for a different podcast. Um, and my love life was like, it's just like, you know, really toxic relationship, what I have to go forward. Um, she gave me hope. She was like, actually, She's like, Robbie, if you like parts of your new life and parts of, you miss parts of your old life, create a new normal and bring them all together. Do <laughs> Robbie 2.0. Yes, dear. And going forward, literally from that point, literally from that point, I made the decision, I made the decision to myself. I was like, Robbie, I will never, ever, ever allow one person make me feel bad for living my HIV again. I made that, I made that point to myself. And after that, I left him. And can I just say, He's a very, very, living, living a great life in London now. He's very happy. We keep in contact mm-hmm. because there's forgiveness there. Yes. He hadn't a clue what everything was going through. I hadn't a clue. It was new for all of us. And in fairness to junior doctors, like they only get one yeah. HIV um, uh, lecture in the whole five years. And it's about the biomedical side, not the human side, right? Yeah. So there's a lot of forgiveness there. We're good pals now. And I w- really wish him all the best. But making that decision, it was just as simple as that. And then you hear things of, oh, your friends are Robbie, the one with AIDS, you know? Some people might find that difficult. I'm like, get so angry. I'm like, oh, they don't know the difference between HIV and AIDS. <laughs> because I didn't know the difference between HIV and AIDS. I'm not angry at them. I'm angry at the situation. Yeah. You know, why don't they yeah. know? Yeah. Um, so, so, so that's where it comes from. Just really making that point. Because I was so low, I was like, I'm never letting myself get there. And it was really just that black and white moment. It was like, I'm not doing that anymore. That's actually incredible. That's amazing. It's a really powerful moment. So shout out to Deirdre too. Yes. And I love that idea that what what kind of Deirdre um, showed you was pick the positive things in your life and then allow them to grow. Mm -hmm. That's something I'm really focusing on at the moment is being like, what do I love about my life? Even if it's tiny and I'm like, like I've gone back singing more full time because I'm like, I love to sing, but it became such a negative thing that I left it behind and then I'm like, no, you sing in the shower every morning because it's the joyful. And then in the last year, I'm like, oh, no, I'll start gigging again. Mm-hmm. I'll start doing that. And just picking the small things and then they will grow yeah. if you focus on those positive things. It's true. It's true. Just, yeah, like you have to work to have joy in your life. 
to yes. be honest. People just think it happens naturally. No, you have to work for joy. Yeah. And that yeah. means whether going to therapy, finding out the little things yeah. and really being appreciative of doing a gratitude diary. These are like, they seem like small things, but like you have to work and they accumulate into this really joyful, happy life. And it's the yeah. consistency of it. It's about showing up for yourself again and again and again and, and then and seeing. And you I mean, deserve it. You yeah. could have received Deirdre's words as being oversimplistic. It's not as simple as that, Deirdre. I mean, that would, that is also a legitimate response to that. But you took those words and made them, as she, lived them as she intended, that, that simple but hugely powerful piece of advice. I'm a very simple person, Karen. You, <laughs> <laughs> so it worked well for me. <laughs> but you seem to have come with all the ingredients as well for, for, to be able to just take all of this and be this beacon of light and hope for everybody. I mean, it's a blessing to the world mm -hmm. that you are actually able to, I don't know, to, it's like, it's nearly like, you know, you see a balloon that's deflated and it just comes up into itself. I mean, that's, it almost sounds like that's what you're describing, is that you're able to actually, you're available for the love, you're available for the joy, and you're so generous in sharing it. Mm. Well, it comes from, if I go back to my very first point, who I am is my mam, right? Oh. And I think what you two are doing so well now is um, I'm getting it from my mam. I, get, I try to give it to anyone who I see, but you're, you're two are those people too. And I feel like everyone has the potential to be that person. And we get so much from it. It's not completely altruistic, you know. Yeah. Well, we can, absolutely. We, yeah. we can help change the world or we can see uh, when you do your celebrancy yeah. and like just see joy and people. <laughs> it's a buzz. Yes. It's yes. fun. You're not feeding into negativity. It's yeah. literally feeding into the love. And it's like, you really do. It's called a love buzz for a reason, yeah. right? Yeah. Yes. Like we get to stand in front of a couple of hundred people sometimes and share inclusive language, mm. an inclusive way of being, an acceptance of what ex what's in front of us a love and acceptance and just radiate that. Mm -hmm. And people thrive on it because they go, we don't have the opportunity. We, we don't have the opportunity often enough to come together and share an experience, an emotional experience together. Yeah. And that's what a ceremony is. It mm -hmm. is a group of people coming together with the sole intent of, of sharing an emotional connection. And we need to take that and harness it and amplify it mm -hmm. in any possible way that we can. Um, so yeah, it's a total buzz. I get a kick out of it, but I also get a kick out of seeing people go away with their hearts full. Yeah. Yeah. Just because of the connection they've experienced. I don't yeah. know, there you have sideline on ceremonies. No, <laughs> no, it's important. That. It is really important. Mm -hmm. And things like, I mean, trauma-informed ceremony, where we will preempt what might be triggering in a ceremony for people. We use language that's going to be inclusive and not trigger them. Um, if somebody was to somehow share a HIV status during, you know, that, that we don't mm -hmm. get phased by that or make it, you know, that we're like, mm -hmm. okay, great, lovely. This is your life mm -hmm. that's in front of us. And here we go. Well, one way that you can share the love that I find, and one of my favorite things about when I do uh, weddings with celebrants, is the storytelling part of yes. it too, yes. isn't it? Yes. Yes. I That's love that. just so for for me, um, I say love changed hearts and minds, but it's through the medium of storytelling, because there's something so powerful about storytelling, isn't it? That people you just people let down barriers, especially when it's vulnerable or you know how people met or whatever. Yeah. Yeah. It, people just take it in a lot more than just stating facts, for example, you know. Um, and I just think so. What we do is the same. Yes. It's just sharing love and humanity through yeah. storytelling. Yeah. It's just maybe on different platforms or yeah. to different audiences, but it's the exact same, really. Yeah. Uh, speaking of storytelling, can you tell us about how to tell a secret? Yes. Um, <laughs> which is, well, you tell us. Okay, so... Well, I give the long story the short story. I want the long one. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Buckle up, people. Shake it where you need to go. Okay. So let's bring it back to 2012, right? Ooh. When I got my diagnosis. Um, I had to go back to five people 
to say you need to get tested. Five sexual partners between 18 to 21. And I cared about them all deeply. We all had a great relationship. Um, and I was like, if I didn't know about HIV, well, I obviously got a somehow or passed it on, you know, potentially. So I need to tell them now I was losing sleep. Um, so I went back to the five face to face to tell them, go get tested. And one of them was a guy called Sean Dunn. And we were together like three months, but we kept in contact afterwards. And he's a really nice guy. And we, we disclosed in Eddie Rockets on O'Connell Street. And I don't know why I told him there, but I did. <laughs> Maybe so I could do a legger if it's bad. A place of the time. Yeah, it's exactly. definitely a place of the time. <laughs> I wouldn't step foot in it now. <laughs> I just, I just, I love Eddie Rockets. Um, I love the wings. Yeah. No, no, we love you. We're going to empty your pockets these days. Cost of living crisis. Um, but... <laughs> The, so I told him and his reaction was just phenomenal, right? Absolutely phenomenal. Um, it was just so full of heart. He reached over, touched my hand and was like, are you okay? That was his very first way of doing it. I remember leaving just feeling so happy and because it was like one of the very first disclosures I ever done it was in mm. the first two weeks of getting my diagnosis. Anyways, um, around a year later, he got back to me. He's a playwright, I should say also. He's like, Robbie, I want to make a play about the experience of people living with HIV in Ireland. It was maybe it's two years. And I was like, yes, yes, yes. He's like, you can be the community link consultant because I was um, working in the community then. And I had, I knew lots of people living with HIV of all gender, sexualities, and, you know, places of origin. Didn't matter. I had so many friends, but yet no one wanted to come out. And I was like, this play is a way that we can safely share their stories because it's all mm-hmm. about stories in a creative, um, in a creative way, in a sensitive way, and a way that really portrays what they're telling us. So we interviewed over 40 people. And we made a play called Rapids together. And it was in Dublin Fringe Festival, done really well, went all around Ireland, got us in the Late Late Show, uh, which was incredible. So we got to put, like you, because you on the map, the stories of people living with HIV on the map. We, we got to break the silence of HIV. Um, during one of the screenings, uh, there was an amazing woman called Anna Rogers, who's a director from Invisible Treads production company. And she came up to Sean's like, let's get Irish Arts Council funding to turn this play into a movie. And they put it forward and they got funding in 2012 mm-hmm. to make a, a full length movie, a movie documentary, right? So then we were like, oh crap, like, you know, how are we going to put like a play into a movie form? Well, it's not me. I'm not a playwright. I'm like <laughs> completely creatively deficient. But this was like Sean I don't believe and Anna. And then uh, there was Amazing Vlad to Flipovich for who was the producer. So it's this dream team of people. And... COVID happened. <laughs> so what, what, what should have been shot in six months, shot over two years. So if you do watch the movie, which I'll tell you about later, where you can, um, I have 10 different haircuts now. <laughs> I almost wish I had alopecia. <laughs> yeah, because the inconsistency was horrendous. And because of COVID, there's no hair and makeup. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. True. Awful. Um, but we got to, Aveda came into the, the movie and it's this hybrid of theater, documentary and film. And it's done in such a way that like um, Eva Jane Gaffney, who I actually went to school with, was playing me. We were playing around Mm. in gender because, yes, although she was playing a gay man, we share similar experiences of stigma, the medication we were on. And women visibility in living with HIV is so low Mm. in this country, even though there are so many women living with HIV in this country, that it's important just to have that representation just to have the visibility of a woman talking about the experience of HIV. Um, So the fact that it was this hybrid approach allowed these women's stories to still be told regardless of 
the actor that was coming okay. from. And it's just such an interesting way um, of doing it. It's just full of heart. And it's a contemporary look of living with HIV because we've probably seen all It's a Sin or, you know, Philadelphia. Mm-hmm. And generally, it's white gay men dying of AIDS. That's what mm-hmm. we see in popular culture, in the media. And those stories did exist and are so important to tell, but they're not the only stories. We have Pose as well, which is an incredible mm-hmm. show. Um, but we need a contemporary look at Live My HIV because our experience is nothing like that anymore. Yeah. It's not. The hardest thing for people living with HIV today is how do I tell my secret? How do I tell someone my HIV status? That is the number one most difficult thing for us. Um, so that's what the movie is, How to Tell a Secret. Why so we, we tell to go a see it to find oh, out yeah, how exactly. to tell a secret. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I, I went to see it in The Lighthouse on my own. I don't know why. I had this thing in my head that I was like, I'm going to see that on my own. Um, and I arrived and there was actually like, um, it was during the day because I live that freelance lifestyle. Um, and there was, I think about like five or six people in the cinema, everyone on their own. And it was just so beautiful. Mm-hmm. And it was so odd seeing, because at the time I was working mm-hmm. or it was just after I'd been in studio situation with you or been at events where I'd seen you. And it's just amazing to see someone you've heard so much about on the screen and feel like you're seeing them for the first time again. Mm-hmm. Um, and one of my favorite That's scenes. Because the hairstyles. Because yeah, the hairstyles. Yeah, that was 10 different people. <laughs> <laughs> That's exactly what it was. <laughs> But it was so interesting you mentioned my favorite scene, which was when you sat down with the girl who played you. What was Eva it? Jane, yeah. In was that in your house, by the way? That was my house. Yeah. I was first of all like Sarah this house is stunning. Yeah, I married Rich. <laughs> Thank God. I was like, oh my god, the house. But I loved that scene. Like it was you knew each other for so long, but mm. again, it felt like you were meeting each other for the mm-hmm. first time or meeting uh, parts of yourself for yeah. the first time and I just that scene has always yeah. like stuck with me um, and do go see the film oh, yeah. where, where can do you, okay. can you tell us where to see it yes um, so first up I don't know when this is actually going to be released but RTE are going Monday week yeah Monday week okay RTE are going to be showing how to tell a secret secret I should get it right <laughs> uh, it's 11:30 p.m now right so I think people living with HIV get a little bit triggered when we're put to that like the end of the queue yeah, yeah. however I re- highly recommend watching it on the player yes if the player doesn't work for you which it doesn't work for many people <laughs> if you're in the Republic of Ireland you can rent it off the IFI website the Irish Film Institute it's around eight euro but it's an amazing so many people have downloaded it and they've watched yeah. it time and time again um if you're in London, I think on the 30th, it's going to be in the Irish Cultural Centre. Oh, wow. And we're hoping to get it on a streaming service because I work on global HIV policy. Mm-hmm. And stigma is universal. Shame is universal. And it's not just universal to HIV. So many people who watch the movie or listen to the podcast say, I get so much from a, I don't live with HIV, but I you know, live with mental health issues or mm-hmm. I live with eating disorders or whatever. And do you know what society tells us is shameful and what we have to overcome is a journey for everyone. I, I know you, I hear you say that word journey quite a time and there's lots of back and forth, but it's just seeing how people are going on those journeys and how they're resilient and brave or how, how they're still midway on that journey and still getting like a lot of inspiration from that. I think the movie just really showcases that. It's just full of heart and you can just see the whole team behind um, how to Tell a Secret. We're like a little family. I actually call it the How to Tell a Secret family. It's an if-denominated documentary. Sinead O'Connor won, of course. Oh, <laughs> We're not going to do one, but uh, yeah, it's won awards all over the world. It's film festivals all over the world. It's 
truly, truly incredible. Um, and, and it's kind of a snowball effect. And that's not a surprise given the topic, because the whole thing with shame and stigma, as you mentioned, is that it's kept secret. Yeah. So the more opportunities we have creatively to share and talk about and, and start conversations about it, I mean, we, the more you speak, Robbie, we live in a country where our national psyche has been so deeply wounded by shame and yeah. secrecy and silence. I mean, when you spoke about that memorial in the Phoenix Park, I am so heartful to hear that that's mm. coming because we need all of these people that, that were forgotten. I mean, Ireland through the, through the de decades since, I don't know, since time immemorial, <laughs> but particularly in the last 100 years, we have had, I mean, we got away from the colonization from Britain, and we were recolonized by the Catholic Church, yeah. as far as I'm concerned. Mm -hmm. And I'm very passionate about the impact of that on the national psyche, in that so many secrets then were shoved under the carpet. People were, children were traumatized, children were taken from parents, women were incarcerated. Mm -hmm. I mean, gay men, I can't, I can't even fathom the depth of the stigma and shame and fear and, you know, illegality mm -hmm. and all of this that came with it, along yeah. with the HIV diagnosis. All of these things that were shoved under the carpet of this country are now coming back out again. And it is so important that we take each group and hold them tenderly yeah. and see them and witness them and support them and pour unconditional love in that direction and yeah. amplify their stories and their legacy and mind them because we're a caring nation mm -hmm. and we are, we're incredibly progressive. When we're allowed to show how progressive we are, we step up. And we are so incredibly... Karen, I'm with you in that. Like, <laughs> some people get a bad rep, right? Because the, the bad voices are amplified on social media or whatever. Yeah. But I generally say the people in Ireland are generally sound. Yeah. Once you tell them your story, they're like, okay, well, what's an issue with HIV? Yeah. You know, once you're giving them time to grow and to learn and, and to true story time to catch up, they catch up. They yeah. do. Yeah. Some take longer than others. Well, I am always of the belief, maybe it's like, I don't know, infatigable opti optimism, <laughs> but um, I really do see the best in people. I really do think that people can grow and they yeah. do grow. I see it in my uh, before my eyes every single time I give a talk. And um, yes, you know, we, we're regressing in many areas. It just means we need to be louder. Yay. Yeah. Yes. Oh, yeah. I think that's, uh, and it's so good to hear because I think, you know, it is easy to fall into the shadows when things are getting more and more difficult. And I sometimes feel that myself, like myself, retracting. So I think it's so amazing to have people like you just going, no, speak up get louder and it's it's a real privilege to Create just have space someone right beside you put that energy into mm. you so thank you for that and have fun when we do it and have yes. fun yes. people always say like activism is not always anger it's actually just so much fun i have such no. a like great family yeah. of people yes. who just want to make the world better like yeah. Yeah. <laughs> it really yeah. is it's just and so there's something great. so life-affirming in yes. getting behind a cause that you care about mm -hmm. um like there really really is activism to me is a way of life it's like i care about this so i'm going to talk about it and mm -hmm. and get behind it and do something and that feeds my soul in a way that if I didn't do that, that's, that would lead me to feel empty and lost and, and yeah. unsure. Like, find out what it is that you're passionate about and get behind that. Can I go on a little um, go on. rant about activism yes. now? And I mean ranting the best thing. Um, I, I normally, when me and Veda give talks, I'm like, Veda, I'm going to do a five-minute rant. Is that okay, and Veda, go for it. <laughs> <laughs> um, activism is something really close to my heart, okay? So um, when uh, I was diagnosed in 2012 and I was, uh, I felt, uh, I was like, it wasn't an epidemic of HIV, it was an epidemic of silence, yeah. silence and shame. That's what it was in 2012 for me. Um, and then I was hearing all my friends of my HIV and how they were experiencing stigma. I was like, we need to break this culture of shame and silence because it's this vicious cycle. Mm -hmm. We're silent mm -hmm. because we're afraid of the shame and stigma. Yeah. 
and because we're silent, they're not educated. And that's how it has power. And that's how it has power. So I removed that power and I wanted to be and um, break that cycle by sharing my story. And I, I remember as this, as this like 23 or two year old, three year old, I was like, no one want to listen to me. Like, do you know what I mean? I'm like, how can I try and break this uh, like Goliath of social stigma um, and this like silence, which is forced upon people of made HIV. And it was just by chipping away at it and just saying, trying to like reaffirm the self-belief that one voice can make a change, maybe not to the world, but to one other person. They come out about their status, they join the Kiki, they start sharing their story, and it doesn't become one person, it becomes a movement then. And that's what we have seen, not saying that it was all me, it's amazing people in mm-hmm. Ireland, through HIV Ireland and other organisations, but to think that you are too small not to make change mm-hmm. is a load of yeah. BS. Yeah. And let me tell you, because I can see it firsthand, Another part of my activism is Access to Medicines Ireland. So um, when I started working on global policy, um, I started meeting friends from Uganda or Zimbabwe or Zambia. And I was like, oh yeah, I'm on my sixth option of HIV treatment. I could go on my eighth or ninth or tenth if I needed to. It's kind of like trying to find the right contraceptive pill or um, like sertraline diagnosis. You just have yeah. to fix it to find the right one for you, you know? Um, same with HIV treatment. And my friends would say, well, my whole family died of AIDS in 2000 because they didn't have access to treatment while we in Ireland did. Yeah. And then I was like, oh my God, how, how is that a case? It's the same with breast cancer drugs, you know? Someone could get um, breast cancer in Malawi with four children. She wouldn't get her septin while a mother of four in Ireland will. I was the in one. Malawi in 2000 and I witnessed some of the HIV mm-hmm. epidemics. There were people in a, in a little mud hut with a microscope and that's how they were diagnosing HIV. Um, my, my friend was working in Malawi and she was like, in the surgery, people were using the iPhone flash to do the surgery because they just yeah. the electricity stockouts and stuff like yeah. that. So there's huge inequities around the world. And so I came back to Ireland then saying, you know, after talking in Parliament about these inequities and why we need to change the system um, to make it more equitable and, and profitable for businesses because we live in a capitalistic world. But how can we make the world more fairer? Um, then I came back to Ireland, all juiced up and there was nothing happening here. So I met up with two doctors who were interested in the Access to Medicines movement. We set up Access to Medicines Ireland and they were one of the leading organisations in all of Ireland, working with Oxfam, talking to politicians about how we need to change the system, especially during pandemics. Um, again, it was me saying, like, mm. just all big pharma are based in Ireland, right? Because yeah. our tax centers, basically. So it's this Goliath of um, lobbying power. Yeah. And yet we're chipping away. We haven't made huge wins yet. Because and they all want to say they're ethical. Ugh, and this is a way for them responsibility. to get, get behind it and do something to show that they're ethical and they, they have social will. responsibility. They, so if oh, I can, talk, really about, about if I can talk about HIV yeah. here, between 1996 and 2006, generic cheaper HIV treatment wasn't allowed to be imported, manufactured or sold in mm-hmm. sub-Saharan Africa alone. And MSF and the African Union estimated that 9 to 12 million people died of AIDS needlessly while we got to survive here in Ireland purely because pharmaceutical companies wanted to hold on to intellectual property, even though Sub-Saharan Africa wasn't even the market they were selling to anyways. 37 pharma companies brought the Nelson Mandela government to court because they tried to remove the intellectual property, while half a million people were dying a year of AIDS back in the year 2000 in South Africa. So when we say we're trying to change the game, like you probably hear of the ACT UP, you know, um, greed killed or... um, 
they care more about profits than people. This is absolutely true. And we have the data to back it up. Mm -hmm. But we also have other models of how to change the game. So we're pushing these models or reinforcing them because time after time, we're seeing failures in pandemic preparedness and response. But not only pandemics, again, breast cancer, right? Mm -hmm. That woman in Malawi died. Her four children are orphaned now in Malawi. But in Ireland, they don't. So coming back to the activism, Mm -hmm. find what you're passionate about and... I didn't know much about intellectual property or different models of how we can change the system uh, or even how to talk to the media or how to talk to politicians. But I just slowly built myself up to it. And I always had this belief that, you know what, Robbie, you have to try and make change because something has to happen. We do not have the privilege of not being active citizens in the world that we're inheriting or what we're going to give to the generation below us. They are really screwed. And I don't think we're talking about this enough. But what motivates us? The motivation is for love of our society. It's love for our world. And it's caring deeply for people who may not be in our sphere. I care deeply for everyone of my friends in Zambia, in Uganda. Mm -hmm. Why should I get to live this privileged life while they die? Um, So so that's what motivates us. So if you're thinking about getting into activism, it might not have to be access to medicines or HIV, find out what you see as a big injustice. Educate yourself and realize that you can make a difference. Reach out to other people, because I can tell you now, there's people in Ireland. Write letters, but like also bang pots. Yeah, write letters, make noise. The power of boycott. I'm always talking about it. When you're doing your grocery shopping, put your money where your mouth is and only buy products that are that feel ethical to you. Look at where they made. We look at what's going on. Yeah. Um, and these are very, very simple things because I'm always mindful of ableism and all that. People go, mm-hmm. oh, I'm not physically able to get out there marching in the streets. You don't have to. Yeah. The revolution begins at home. Mm-hmm. Do what you can. Say what you can. Have the conversations. Get uncomfortable. Um, Oh, I love the all revolution this begins at home. Love it. Yeah, I, I, yeah. Have it um, I have it written on my key ring. Yeah. <laughs> I want a tattooed on my forehead. Yeah. That's what yeah. I want. <laughs> can, I, can, I give a, can I give a very uh, t- subtle observation here? As you were talking there, Robbie, and you were completely passionate and fired up, I was like, God, he looks really familiar. And then I realized, it is so true. You look like Patrick Swayze. <laughs> oh, my God. <laughs> I got that an awful lot. Yeah. I, I did hear surprised. it. I did hear it on one of your podcasts, Veda. <laughs> I get it. You will like be surprised at how many drunk cis women in gay bars are like, lift me up! And they jump at the amount of times I, I have fallen with them. Yeah. <laughs> oh <my God. laughs> so I'm sorry. I'm, I'm pretty drunk when it happens too. But, you, um, you, you were yeah. Mr. Gay Ireland 2014, were you? Yes, okay. So, <laughs> yes. This, there's a story in linked to HIV. I may have done a bit of research. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's funny that keeps coming up. It's a part of my life. But it was actually a really important part of my life for activism, right? So remember, I was like, no one want to listen to a 22, 23-year-old okay, about HIV. Yes. Basically. So I left the doctor at wow. the time. I was like, this new normal. And my friends were going into this Mr. Gay Ireland competition. There was heat all over Ireland. And... Um, I was in Panty Bar and the guy was like, go up for the, the heat, like, you know, to see mm. if you can be Mr. Gay Panty Bar. And he was like, <laughs> I went up, I didn't get in. The Pepe, the gorgeous barman got out, who's lovely as well. <laughs> uh, but then the, the owner, Brian Merriman of Mr. Gay Ireland came over. He's like, Robbie, go to Front Lounge. <laughs> and then never gave Mr. Try Gay Front again. Lounge. Anyways, <laughs> then I went through to Mr. Gay Ireland final. So you had to be in like your fucking tongue, basically, on the thing. And my man was there like, hi. <laughs> But one of the important things was you get to talk for two minutes on a topic in the community. Wow. Oh my now, this God. was 2014. <laughs> this and is activism. <laughs> no one was talking about HIV. Not one person then, but HIV rates were rising in Ireland. So I wanted to talk about that and it's my first time ever publicly speaking. In so, a tongue. 
I know I was actually normal clothes okay. then. <laughs> <laughs> I wouldn't put anyone through that. <laughs> like, that is courage. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> That's activism. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, so, so yeah, I talked. It was my first time, and I remember it was only two minutes of a seat, but I was so nervous. I was like, uh-huh, and I was like talking but it's the most liberating thing you can do because you really are living when you're pushing yourself outside your comfort zone and I know it's another cliche everyone's like I hate it. I'm like just do it do it do it really really do it because you get such a buzz after that you know you're like yeah. oh and then um, I won Mystic Ireland and then what that gave me was uh Trinity College it's like Mystic Ireland's coming to talk about HIV wow. you know and then it was um yes. it gave me that platform where actually it did get me through the door now it would have got me through the door anyways because I know loads of like people who don't have the title of Mystic Ireland and people just want to hear these stories. Yeah. So, but I, back then I thought that this is how I get in. So it's really stood with me. And then I was in Mystic Europe, in Austria and Mystic World in Rome, which I came oh second for the world. Yeah. <laughs> so I got to talk on bigger and bigger stages, which grew and my confidence more yes. and more to speak. And um, so yes, it might seem flippant as, no, uh, you know, whatever was. I knew there'd be something really powerful. Being well, it really allowed me to grow confident in myself in my public speaking and sharing my message. Mm-hmm. So yeah, I like I think it really, really helped to get where I am today, funny enough. Oh my God, that's phenomenal. I love that today I've learned so much more mm-hmm. about you. Like I listen to Pause Vibes. I've got to sit and listen to you chat. Like I've always thought you're amazing. But today I'm like, I've seen, mm-hmm. I feel like we've peeled back all these eyes. See, we, like, get, we get the person that you don't normally present to people because, yes. I mean, Pause Vibes is such an amazing podcast, so please go and listen to it. But you've, ta- you've elaborated on so many of those stories that you touched on fully in Pause Vibes. And we want a side of you that actually other people haven't seen and heard yet. It's different being a host versus an interviewee, Yay. isn't it? Um, I, I made a kind of early decision because, you know, when you're saying, oh, podcast, what's the kind of format going to be? Yeah. Yeah. I was like, Veda, me and you share our stories so often. We're holding the space for people to share their stories because oftentimes... That our guest is the first time they ever shared their story in yeah. a way that's uninterrupted, in a way that's super safe. Yeah. Um, it, the attention's all on them and that's what I wanted it to be. Yeah. So I kind of hold back on, well, obviously we give a little bit of ourselves in it because we're hosts, not robots. <laughs> um, but yeah, I, I think um, for me, it's just all about the guests, always. Yeah. Um, and I always say, this is the ethos of Vibe. I want people to leave better than they came in. Yeah. Yeah. That's yeah. what I want them to do. Can oh, we wrap that inspo, for this podcast? Yeah, of yes. course. And we, we'd love Veda to come in as well. Oh, yes. yes because when, when I listened to Veda speak about um, spilling the tea and your tea is your trauma, I'm like, oh my God, that's what we need. More, more, more of that. Infinitely more. And p- different people's perspectives on trauma and, and how to deal with it. I mean, you've spoken so much about it, stigma and trauma, but we can't get enough voices speaking about this, yeah. especially no. in this country. Mm-hmm. We are nationally programmed subliminally. Our collective unconscious is full of shame and stigma. Yeah. And we take it on without ever realizing that we have or haven't. So when you spoke about being able to decide that's not mine, that's what we need everybody able to do. Mm-hmm. Um, oh, yeah. I've one question as well. Go on. Can I? Um, yes. <laughs> this is going to be a chair podcast and I love it. Yeah. Let's keep it going. Let's keep it going. <laughs> Sorry, Robbie. No, no, no. I, I don't want to go back and do my PhD. I want to run away from <laughs> it. Go, we are psychically connected because the one thing I couldn't find out on when I Googled you was, what is the topic of your PhD? Okay, that's a much... Ask your other question because that uh, I, I'm in PhD trauma at the moment. Oh, are you? <laughs> I will answer that though. Oh, I, will answer that I do though. apologize. No, I, I totally feel that. Yeah. <laughs> Why don't it's, we, it's once the PhD test. has finished and yes. you've, you've left it behind and you've had time to heal yeah. from no, the process. Okay. I'll, I'll give it the a The endurance test of it all. No, I'm, I'm, I'm being awkward here. No, the, the, my PhD is 
a, a marrying of my two loves, okay? HIV and access to medicines. Okay. And I've done a lot of work in Ukraine, in Kyiv, and I, I love effective and good activism. I love, love, love it. So my PhD is looking at how HIV and hepatitis C treatment activists in Ukraine reduced the price of medicines between 2014 to 2020 to increase coverage of this life-saving treatment twofold in just those short years. So I'm interested wow. in the kind of socio-cultural and economic and kind of geopolitical um, um, context in which nurtured such good activism. Because of course activists wanted access to treatment before 2014, mm. but it wasn't effective in terms of the activism. It wasn't being listened to. So what happened in 2014? I'm looking at the how by looking wow. at the when, essentially. Mm. So I'm finishing it, I'm writing it up. I want to do it by October. So that's the, okay. that's the PhD. And breathe, send um, you loads yes. of love to that. Yeah, that's a lot of a lot of work. It is, but I love it. It, it is really nice. I just and say, you're doing I just so much else trauma. in the world. <laughs> so you're doing so much else in the world. I mean, to actually be able to do all of I that. I know, when do you have time to write? Write a PhD. Um, <laughs> my other small, well, it's not a small question, but my other question was a practical one around, um, you mentioned having been on like three dates with the doctor and mm. then getting your diagnosis. Is there, I mean, it might be how long is a piece of string, but is there an average time from when you, when somebody receives a diagnosis and goes on treatment to when they can be at that uh, U equals U stage? Mm. Like, is there a long, is there a gap where you do have to maybe use protected sex like, or do, yeah. What, what does it actually yeah, mean Yeah, wait in, in to real get life? tested or... Yeah. Okay, so two things I heard from that that I picked up that uh, I hope I can answer well. So how long does it take to become undetectable, okay? okay yeah. So that really does come down to different kind of clinical issues here, okay? So one is what kind of treatment you do, because some treatments are quicker reducing the viral load, how much vi viruses in your system per mil of your blood, okay? And it also depends on how much viruses in your system before you start treatment. So you're most infectious or you're most likely to pass on HIV when you first get HIV yourself. Because for the first two weeks, your body doesn't recognize the HIV is in the system. So it goes haywire because your body's not fighting back. And that means you could have like 9 million of HIV per mil of your blood. So imagine okay. 9 million of HIV going around your body. And so you're much more like, you're much more infectious likely to pass it on. So if you have 9 million of HIV, your treatment, it might take your treatment a lot longer, around six okay. months to reduce it to undetectable levels. Undetectable means less than 40 HIV um, wow. per mil of your blood. So it could go from millions to less than 40. That's why there's so little free-flowing HIV in the body that you just simply cannot pass on. on. It's, the risk is there. We can have children who are passing on HIV, I should say, too. Um, so that's undetectable. But if I, I, was, I had 67,000 HIV copies per mil of my blood when I was diagnosed. It took me two months to become undetectable. Oh, wow. But you get checked more regularly when you're first diagnosed, okay? Mm -hmm. So it depends. So the second question is, um, when do you tell someone you're mm -hmm. dating about your living with HIV, right? Mm. This is a question that comes up quite a lot, and it's just because you brought up the doctor friend, um, and this is a question I get asked so much by people living with HIV, and my answer is, it's completely up to you and the vibe of the person you're dating, mm. okay? And I'm gonna bring in how we can be allies in this too. Um, so I had I had a five date rule back then, right? As in, one, I didn't wanna have sex with someone until the fifth date. That was just before HIV actually. Um, and the second one, the second one after my diagnosis was, I'm gonna tell them on the fifth date. And the reason why fifth date for me personally, it was because you kind of get a, is this going to go somewhere? Mm -hmm. Do you know? Is it just, yeah, or yeah. is it going to be a waste of the time? Or are they a good person? Or Because um, well, HIV is such a dehumanizing experience. 
HIV stands for human immunodeficiency virus, and people forget the H, the human side. It does see you as an immunodeficient virus, a vector of disease. Um, while on the fifth date, they know Robbie. They know me. Mm-hmm. Yeah. While if I told them straight off, they'd either just see me as a sexual act, or they'll see me as a virus and not as a person. So I thought it was just a really good way of telling them. And it wor- has worked every single time I told someone on the fifth day. But that's only personal. I know people who just don't want that stress at all, who just have it on their Grindr profile or their Tinder profile, mm. like yeah. Aoife Commons, a 27-year-old nurse, woman from Galway, has it on her Instagram. She recently came out on the Positive podcast. So it's very individual. Um, some people do on the third date, or some people are in a relationship for six months and they're still finding it difficult to tell their partner. Because you can imagine the longer you leave it, the yeah. harder it is. Because yeah, yeah. then they're like, yeah. will there be trust issues? But, you know, they're not putting anyone to harm. Yeah. But it's just, what, what, it's, the conversation becomes more difficult, you know? So this is where allyship can come in. The onus is always on the person living with HIV to bring up HIV. On the first or second or third date, why don't you as someone who's HIV negative saying, God, oh, 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 he's on prep, or, you know, oh, I, I just seen Robbie Lawler's documentary. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Isn't it amazing about you, because you know, or, oh, I got um, a full test before I came off, you know, um, I don't have HIV, but, you know, it's amazing, the medical advancements, you know, because you're open up the conversation yeah. for the partner who may have HIV. And let me talk about the queer community. HIV does affect us most. It's very much prevalent in all communities but around 50% of all new diagnoses are in gay and bi men. Um, so there's a very strong likelihood that when you're dating someone, they live with HIV. There's a lot of it in Ireland, especially Dublin in the community. Okay. But the likelihood is if someone tells you to live with HIV, they're most likely undetectable. They're the safest people who have sex with not to get HIV. To people who don't know their status that are passing on HIV. That's the real kind of paradox. Yeah. Yeah shift and there's other stds that you need to be watching out for yeah well of course there's other stis you know they're mostly manageable okay herpes is like you know uh, chronic as well but that does valtrax if you have suppression therapy if you need it and get tested every three months there's at-home testing kits yes well let's promote this people don't like taking a half day off college or work to get tested and you're queuing up for two or three Mm. hours this is a free hse service right so sh24.ie you put in your information you put in your um, you put in your uh, home address, they send you a, a home testing kit. You do it all yourself in your bathroom, yourself mm-hmm. swabs, your finger prick yourself and put in the blood. And then they give you a free packaging. You put it back in, put it through the post and you get a text in five days, five working wow. days, yes. all your results. And they link you to care straight away if anything becomes positive. Um, it's and a it's game changer. looks anonymous. So oh, when anonymous. it goes through the door, it doesn't look like mm-hmm. here's your SDI kit. Yeah. It's, you know, if and you're living with people, yeah. Yeah, it's nationwide. So yeah, exactly. As you were saying, it's anonymous. That's a big thing. People hate going to the HIV clinic or SGI yeah, clinic because yes. they're like, oh, I'm going to meet Mary down the road. You know, and because that, that's the yeah, shame absolutely. thing again, yeah. right? It's like yeah. everyone has sex. Mary's obviously having sex yeah. in the SGI <laughs> clinic. Jesus Christ. But like, it's it's so, um, it's so, it's such a good way of overcoming that. Totally. You know, it's a real shortcut. Now, yeah. in saying that, you should always try and talk to a sexual nurse or doctor because that's always the preference if you have any yeah. questions. But at home testing, come on. There's no yeah. reason to do it. And I know you're celebrants here with marriage yeah. and love and all that. But can we talk about monogamy for a reason? Because yeah. monogamy and STIs, right? People just think because they're in a monogamous relationship, they're impervious to STIs. I, working in the sexual health field, monogamy, I wouldn't call it a myth, so to speak. It does occur. 
But there's a lot of time that people might go outside the relationship yeah. once or twice, okay? And one of the biggest risk factors for women in Ireland to get HIV is being in a quote-unquote monogamous relationship. Um, so even if you think that, oh, I'm in a monogamous relationship, I didn't I wear condoms all other, all other times, um, HIV and other STIs oftentimes are non-symptomatic. You don't know you have them until mm-hmm. it's one too late or two, you get other AIDS defined illnesses, for example, just get tested. Even once mm-hmm. every five years, just do it for yourself. Yeah. Um, no one has to know. Um, and it's, it's, it's hugely important. I know it's a very difficult thing to think of Course. people going inside relationship. But we'd, be very, we'd, we'd be very behind you on that as well. I mean, mm-hmm. in terms of when yeah. we talk about marriage, we're very open to what different people think, or, you know, what people define as marriage. It's up to yourself as a couple. Yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, hopefully there is consent, but very often as you're alluding there, there's yeah. not, yeah. Um, but this is the reality of life, and we just want to yeah. be with people in the reality yeah. of, of what life is for them. Yeah. A lot of the time, it's not a couple. There's more than more than two people in a yeah. relationship or a marriage. Sounds like a great relationship. <laughs> <laughs> Sign me up. That just sounds like work to me, Robbie. Yeah, I know, that's true. <laughs> I'm the same. I'm yeah. like, no, no, I'd be exhausted. The emotional yeah. world of, of more than one person. Like, Fair so. enough. <laughs> Robbie, we literally would keep you tied to that chair talking all day. Uh, Thank you so much for coming in. For and me. I think we didn't know where this episode would go, yeah. but we knew we wanted you in that chair and we had a strong reason why we wanted you here so thank you just so much for and coming we have in. a little present for you yes uh, only it's only over there so i can't get it but um when i was up getting the coffees i popped into hopeless botanics across the road and they had these little peace lilies and peace yes. lilies regenerate so they don't read no don't worry if you kill it it's fine but um it'll come back to life but they come back to life yeah they kind of regenerate themselves i kill plants all the so time i got, <laughs> I got one each for us we know we, we one for ferg one for me one for you can I get a hug? That's yes. Thank you. I really appreciate it. Actually, that. let me get the little peace lilies. I give it to you. Oh, that's so gorgeous. And a coffee. And oh. a coffee. We're treating you today. Oh my God. Me and Veda, if you're listening to this, we have to start getting our guest gifts. Because this is too lovely. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, hey. pick your, pick your peace lily and then give it to Ferg and Ferg can pick his peace lily and then oh, I will have the, the other one the, yes the one yeah. that's weighted while we mess around with the peace lilies yes. <laughs> I'm going to say thank you so much for listening and thank you again Robbie Lyon thanks for having me and thank you Karen oh, thank you Robbie thanks, thank you Ferg, thank you, Ferg.